0: So in 2020, many of us heard the phrase qualified immunity for the first time in maybe a new light. But, you know, as we're listening to that, what does that even mean? And why is that so important when we think about police, you know, including things like driving or even existing while Black and civil rights in this country? You know, those are some of the questions that we're discussing in today's episode. Because white people, you keep asking us what you can do differently to be more anti-racist. So we're spending the summer going through things in a bite-sized way so that we all know the basics around the most commonly asked questions and issues around racism that we see in this country. Yet again, we'd like to emphasize that this is not a checklist, this is simply a primer. And if you would like more, go buy our book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which is full of people's stories, real history, and action steps for you to take.
1: Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. We've been best friends for 25 years, ever since we met as undergrads at Harvard. And now Sasha is a lawyer, which comes in very handy in today's episode here, folks. She is married to a black man and has very mixed race boys. The world sees as black. I'm a life coach. I'm married to a white Canadian man, and I have two white presenting girls. And together, we help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. So today we get to talk about qualified immunity and I want to issue a disclaimer. Two things. One, Misasha's worked really, really hard to break down the legal talk into like what I can understand. And so hopefully what you can understand in like human English, normal talk, right? But the second thing that she warned me about was that we have to be okay with a gray zone. And I don't know about you, but I'm really freaking tired of living in a gray zone after the last two and a half years. But I will put up with this because from all that I'm learning, this concept of qualified immunity is really important for us to grasp when it comes to thinking about what do we believe about police? What do we think needs to change when it comes to how we police all of our bodies in this country and how immune the police are to certain repercussions? So that's why we want to go into this, because it sort of probably help you understand how you might want to vote differently or do things differently by the time you're done with this episode. So to kick it off, my brainy friend, I'm going to ask you a question. What is qualified immunity?
0: Okay, so I'm so glad you asked. And also, I would like to note that this is why people, well, one of the reasons why people don't like lawyers is because a lot of times people will ask a question. They'll be like, what's the answer? And we'll be like, well, it depends on the facts and the law and people are like I don't like that answer because I want <laughs> the answer but it is so dependent on the facts and the law and precedent right the law that's come before it and the language that's used to describe that so now that you've gone to your first year of law school <laughs> i think that we can talk a little bit about qualified immunity because you know this is one of those things that that depends on the facts and the law and the language which i know you didn't really like when I am.
1: If anyone's watching this, you would see me slowly shaking my head (laughs) side to side.
0: But go ahead. Take me to school. (laughs) Let's define qualified immunity. So qualified immunity is first and foremost a defense right? that law enforcement and other government officials can use when they're being sued or in response to lawsuits that ask for money, right? monetary damages, for alleged civil rights violations. So in other words, if someone says that a police officer violated their civil rights and asked for money in a lawsuit. This officer can say like, "Well, no, I have qualified immunity," which is what we call an affirmative defense, right? So that means that that's something you put out there immediately when someone says, "I think you did this." You're like, "No, nah, I didn't." And now the burden is on the plaintiff to show that this police officer violated a quote clearly established unquote right. So in other words, and what we mean here by clearly established is that some other court had to have said that what the same thing that this officer did in another case was unconstitutional. And if they can't do that, then the officer can't be held liable for his or her actions. So one thing that sucks about the application of qualified immunity is, and you might have guessed this from how I was speaking just before this, is that it's pretty hard to show that a claimed civil rights violation, so how you're saying your civil rights were violated, is similar enough to an actual civil rights violation for most courts. Okay, so here's an example of that. There was a case called Baxter v. Bracey, where a Nashville p- officer released you know, a police dog on a man named Alexander Baxter, who had surrendered to this police officer prior to that dog being released and was sitting with his hands in the air so baxter was bitten by this police dog and sued the officer though a court in the same circuit had ruled a prior incident was unconstitutional in which an officer released a dog on someone who had surrendered lying down the sixth circuit ruled in 2018 that you know it was different enough in facts for the officer to still retain his qualified immunity and just to note after If you lose in the Sixth Circuit, you can appeal to the Supreme Court. That case was appealed and the Supreme Court declined to hear it in 2020.
1: And I wanna talk about at some stage in our long illustrious podcasting career, how a Supreme Court can just say, nah, we don't wanna hear it, but that's for another day. (laughs) Because I wanna sum up what you just said. Releasing a dog on someone lying down is clearly established as a civil rights violation, but releasing a dog on someone sitting with their hands in the air is not a civil rights violation and qualified immunity applies like what yeah that doesn't seem mature to me layman doesn't seem like materially different enough but i hear your point that you made earlier about it's about the facts of the case and it's comes down to such small details like that
0: yeah and one thing i left out of this analysis is notice i said the sixth circuit right we have a number of judicial circuits in our country and so if this case wasn't decided in the same geographic area as yours and it had similar facts, it might not even it's not going to be applicable in the same way. So to further complicate that, it has to be a case in your same geographic area that's been ruled the same way. And they're going to find the facts similar enough.
1: Whoa. So if I had been perhaps lying down with my hands raised, surrendering to a police officer here in Colorado, where I live, Mm -hmm because that there may not have been a precedent set Mm -hmm. that may the same set of circumstances but in different areas could potentially be ruled different levels of like civil rights violations
0: yeah well it wouldn't be a binding precedent because it wouldn't be set by the supreme court and it wouldn't have been set by a higher court in your region so it can be used but it's not binding right so this is what I meant by the gray area. Yeah.
1: Is there a good thing that, like, for this? Because that, oh, anyway, I'm going to take this conversation off topic.
0: I mean, there is, just not in qualified immunity, probably. It works in your favor sometimes in other ways, right? Okay. And it probably works in your favor a lot if you're the defendant. So, But let's talk a little bit, because you know how I was talking about qualified immunity, and it was related to a civil rights violation. So I think it's important, and thank you for continuing to ask me this in questions in our outline is, like where did the concept of qualified immunity come from right so it's actually been in existence for a long time since 1871 and we'll talk about why 1871 in a second but it's never been a law like and i think that that's pretty <laughs> i'm like oh uh. <laughs> like there's not a law out there that says qualified immunity exists right so it's actually sort of a judicial doctrine that was created and then restated by the supreme court and you know i think we've seen that before with in things like miranda rights right but it's similar right so in 1871 and to put this in historical context cuz this is really important Congress was concerned about the rise of the KKK and vigilante justice, because remember, in 1871, we're in Reconstruction, right? So I'm like, oh, wait, you're not talking about 2022? Oh, okay. I mean, still concerned, clearly, you know, so it created Section 1983, Right, which is basically the federal right to sue state and local government officials for violating the Constitution. because again, let's remember in the wake of the Civil War, white vigilantes roamed the south, you know mostly the south also called the KKK, violently attacking newly freed Black Americans. Like, let's not, you know, we've got the Black Codes, too. And we talked about these in prior episodes. And guess what? It wasn't just these white vigilantes. It was also law enforcement officials. You know, we're doing very little to stop them. And we're even taking part themselves. So I think they realized, Congress, and by they, I mean Congress, right, realized that this is a big problem. Right? They wanted to give people the ability to defend their own civil rights. And thought, you know, hey, if we're thinking about this, federal juries probably are more likely to enforce the Constitution. So that's why they created Section 1983. And so the Supreme Court, you know, initially interpreted Section 1983 really narrowly, right? Like, what is a civil rights violation, among other things? Like, who has the right to bring that civil rights violation? And I mean, if you heard that example earlier, you probably still realize that they're still interpreting it quite narrowly, or courts are. But the concept of qualified immunity, right? That you could, so to back up a second, Section 1983 allows plaintiffs to sue on a civil rights violation, right? Of a government official. Qualified immunity stems from that same right to sue, right? Because it's related to the defense that a law enforcement official could bring, right? Or, you know, a government official generally but it was also so section 1983 existed but it didn't really get a lot of airtime in the courts until the civil rights movement in the 1950s and so along with no section 1983 cases there was no discussion of qualified immunity cuz you didn't need to be immune from something that wasn't you know being alleged against you however once civil rights litigators started bringing more cases under Section 1983 in like the 1950s, the Supreme Court ruled in this case, Monroe v. Pape, that people can sue law enforcement officials under this same section for civil rights violations. So they were very clear that, hey, government officials includes law enforcement officials. But in 1967, there was a case in, where the Supreme Court ruled in Pearson v. Ray that police officers and other government officials have, quote, qualified immunity. So this is the first time that they use the term qualified immunity from these lawsuits, as long as they were acting in good faith, and I'm heavily air quoting this because what does good faith mean, right, to enforce the law as they understood it at the time, even if it was later found unconstitutional. So they had to believe in that moment that they were, well, they had to be acting in good faith again. Big gray area. What does that mean, right? To enforce the law as they understood it at the time, even if that law was found to be unconstitutional. So that's where the term qualified immunity came from. The court deemed this defense
1: qualified immunity. Hmm. Oh, so many questions like, Does each court get to decide like the intent and the good faith of the person? And like, I mean, I guess that's a lot of gray zone there. I know you said I have to get comfortable in gray zone, but wow. Well,
0: you know, I think that you raise a good question because... I think the Supreme Court was worried about that too, right? So, remember how I said at the start of this, like the Supreme Court, you know, sort of created and then restated or reinterpreted qualified immunity? And
1: that happened in
0: 1982 in a case called Harlow v. Fitzgerald. These
1: 1982, 1983. I'm like only channeling the book 1984 at this date, <laughs> this conversation. I know, right? Not too far off. But anyway. In that case, the Supreme
0: Court was worried that this good faith standard was too subjective. I mean, I think you and I heard that from the start, right? What does good faith mean? And would cause law enforcement to participate in lengthy depositions, which is where they get questioned prior to trial, to get at their state of mind at the time of the incident. Because remember that Pearson v. Ray standard was tied to what the officer believed was the law at the time, right? So there's a lot of belief like, what was I doing? How did I thinking about that? So, what could go wrong with that, right? Okay. So, I think the Supreme Court realized a lot could go wrong with that. So, they decided to scrap that idea and instead, you know, in this case, stated that government officials have qualified immunity. That includes law enforcement as well, as long as they don't violate, quote, clearly established rights that the officer would have to have been aware of. So, what counts as a clearly established right? Well, they didn't say. So, that, you know, did it make it better? Maybe. It definitely took away this sort of deposition need to get at state of mind, which is probably arguably more subjective. However, what a clearly established right is, you know, over through subsequent rulings over the past 40 years since that case was decided, the Supreme Court, according to time, has made that standard more and more difficult to meet. That's so
1: interesting, because when you talk about like clearly established rights, I mean, my brain not being of the lawyer ilk goes back to like the United Nations human rights, paper, right? And this idea of not being unduly punished or like, I can't remember off the top of my head, what all of those, we mentioned it in our book. And I know- so I was
0: going to be super impressed if you were going to start like citing
1: this. It, I'm going to look it up. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, it, literally, I feel like there's a whole chapter. I mean, I know that there's a whole chapter. Here it is. Look at this. I say that the no one should be subjected to arbitrary arrest, detention, or exile. No one should be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment or punishment. I mean, all of these things are related to that knee-jerk reaction. I just picture all these awful, viral videos that we see of like clearly established rights to maybe not be killed while I'm running away from the police officers. Or, you know, I feel like what clearly established rights are we talking about? Because I think a lot of people are like, oh, the right to vote, but again, that's not what it wasn't in the constitution. So it seems really vague to me. And I wish we could go back to being more human first. But obviously, that's not where we're at with the Supreme Court's Right. Well, and
0: some of that is based on the Constitution, which, as we if we recall who drafted the Constitution, right, they weren't concerned about most of the people who live in this country today. But you're right, you know, because it does seem that qualified immunity like largely sucks. And or like Justice Sotomayor said in a 2018 dissent in another Supreme Court case involving qualified immunity, the concept of qualified immunity and the vagueness surrounding what constitutes qualified immunity sends this message to the police to shoot first and ask questions later you know so I, I think the question is like well why do we still have it right because you know if we care about people's basic human rights and we don't want to shield bad behavior i think that's a valid question but like everything else in this country a lot of people feel like especially related to the question of police and law enforcement and how we handle that. A lot of people feel like removing qualified immunity would be a bad thing. So let's discuss some of the reasons why people feel that would be a bad thing. OK, so for example, as people like Mitch McConnell have suggested and you know, other defenders of qualified immunity have suggested, they say that you know, if it was erased, law enforcement officers could be flooded by expensive lawsuits that would discourage people from joining the profession altogether. Because remember, it's tied to monetary damages, right? Which sounds logical, except the data doesn't support that. And I mean, you gotta love some data, right? I love
1: when you bring in the data.
0: <laughs> facts and truth and data. So, in a 2014 study published in the New York University Law Review, Professor Joanna Schwartz examined payouts in police misconduct cases across 81 law enforcement agencies between 2006 and 2011. And found that roughly 99.98% of the dollars paid to plaintiffs was paid for by local governments and not the officers themselves, right? So when you're thinking about personal liability, that doesn't really exist in how we assume it would be. All right, so maybe it's not the cost, right? Maybe it's not the money. But what, you know, another argument is that if we remove that, would that hinder police officers from doing their jobs and, you know, or like worrying about making mistakes while doing it? And Professor Schwartz has an answer for that too, the Fourth Amendment, right? So going back to the Constitution. And remember that the Fourth Amendment only bans unreasonable, that being the key word here, searches and seizures. So if an officer arrests the wrong person, that actually protects them because, Again, was it unreasonable? That's a different standard. If you're bringing a Section 1983 lawsuit, that means that that mistake has to have been a huge one, right? That bar is really high, as we've discussed. And let's remember that qualified immunity only applies in Section 1983 cases. So if we got rid of it, there would be zero impact on how police are or aren't prosecuted, you know, at state or federal levels,
1: absent, a, you know, a claimed civil rights violation. Like, so in my brain, I just went to that case where the police officer thought, air quotes, thought she was pulling the taser out and instead shot the guy. Would that be something like that could potentially be a civil rights violation or because, I mean, I don't know, like... I'm asking you to comment on an actual real life case. So I realize that that may be a little bit
0: too much of a question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to issue a disclaimer here. I'm not the attorney of record, nor, you know, because a Section 1983 claim is because it's monetary damages, that's like a different lawsuit, right? Than like liability for the officer in that way, because. If you're looking for jail time, right, you're not looking for monetary damages. Like, could it be a civil rights violation? If they were maybe just, instead of killed, like paralyzed for the rest of their lives? I mean, depending on the facts. Here we (laughs) go (laughs) again. I know, you would love that. I feel like, could it be? Is it going to meet that bar? And is it something that the families want to do too? I think, you know, to go through that. Those are all
1: questions. Got it. So it's really about like lawsuits. So what you were just saying was, You know, this whole Fourth Amendment, unreasonable searches and seizures. And if people say, like, it's going to stop them from doing the wrong job, but like, it's not about actual jail time for making the mistake. It's about getting lawsuited after the fact, if that's even a word.
0: Right. And for a civil rights violation, right, which is different than a lot of the other police work that you're looking at. And there are a lot of protections in the Constitution for that work. Again, the Fourth Amendment being probably a huge one, you know. And I think that's, you know, even if we ended qualified immunity, it doesn't mean that everything is wonderful or easier for the plaintiffs in these lawsuits, right? Because there's still a really high barrier to filing lawsuits against the police, including the standards set by the Constitution, right? Again, Fourth Amendment. And the fact that, you know, despite what Congress originally thought, juries and judges are not exactly sympathetic typically to those plaintiffs. And I think we've seen a lot of examples of that recently. You know, but if we go back, To why Section 1983 was created in the first place, which was really to give victims a means of seeking justice in, you know, egregious civil rights violations. Then we can get out of this loop of looking at punishing the offender, right, and what that punishment is, and focus more on the victims, right? Because I think that is what we often lose when we're in this discussion. We're focused on the bad actors, right, and not on the people who are bringing the lawsuit. And those victims are more often than not black and brown people in this country. And by more often than not, I mean highly disproportionately so, as we discuss in Chapter 11 of our book.
1: So tell me. All right. What are we able to do as average people now that we know more about qualified immunity?
0: Okay, well, first of all, talk about it, right? Because I think, you know, if a question comes up in your circles or someone makes a comment about qualified immunity, because a lot of people don't know that it's restricted just to Section 1983 cases or what it means or, you know, what those – how to discuss or dispute maybe you know some of the defenders of qualified immunity what they say you know more now listening to this than the average american or most americans i think as to what it really means who does it benefit and what are the arguments against removing it so definitely speak up because i guarantee you you do you know a lot more than most americans a lot of lawyers too i'm gonna go back and listen to this episode again (laughs) Yes. Listen again to learn more about your local elected officials and national as well, you know, and their positions not only on sort of police reform and what the DAs believe in your area, but really all of that. Look at how they look at government officials and how what that prosecution looks like, too, and what cases they're bringing in the DAs sense. Right. Because You know, we are in a midterm election cycle and who we vote into local office almost matters more than who we vote into national office because those are the people that are making decisions for your individual communities, right? And I think finally, you know, keep asking why because remember the Supreme Court basically created qualified immunity, so it can end it as well, but we have to keep asking those questions.
1: You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list.